Hello and welcome to another episode of Life in the Dark, a podcast dedicated to the golden age of radio and Hollywood's classic era. This podcast is part of the Nomad in the Middle network. More information can be found at nomadinthemiddle.com. The Shadow, a man of mystery who strikes terror in the very souls of sharpsters, lawbreakers, and criminals. All signs point to a severe winter. Be prepared. If you want to be sure of even, dependable, healthful heat in any kind of weather, insist on blue coal. America's finest anthracite mined from the fields of northern Pennsylvania. The coal that has colored a harmless blue at the mines for your protection. Take courage, Gordon. The shadow knows. <laughs> All right, Margo, won't you sit down? I told Albo to serve our coffee here in the library. Unless you'd rather go on the terrace. No, I prefer it here. Then let me see you smile. That frown is most unbecoming. Lamont, give it up. Give what up, my dear? Drinking coffee? I'm serious, Lamont Cranston. When I foolishly let you know that... Do you remember what you said? It will be exactly five years next week. But there's still so much to do, Margot. Well, then let somebody else do it. Don't you realize that you can't keep on like this forever? Someone's certain to identify you, and when that someone does, someone else is certain to kill you. Perhaps, but until they do... Oh, darling, stop frowning. I don't mean necessarily to give up your work, Lamont, but this other... Let the shadow just disappear and, and come out openly. Join the organized forces of law and police. Won't you realize, Margot, that my entire usefulness to the organized forces of law and police lies in my remaining outside those forces, in remaining always the shadow? Would they approve my methods? Would they believe in my science? You would make them believe. You could make them approve. And in doing so, reveal my secrets, my knowledge. Reveal them and eventually let them fall into the hands of organized crime. No, Margot. No one must ever know. No one but you. Why do you think I've devoted countless hours to investigating electrical and chemical phenomena? Why do you think I went to India, to, to Egypt, to China? What do you think I studied in London, Paris, and Vienna? Except to learn the old mysteries that modern science has not yet rediscovered. The natural magic 
modern psychology is beginning to understand and, well, magic that wouldn't seem so natural. I studied and learned for a purpose, my dear. All right, Lamont, I, I realize all that. But now, now the entire underworld has but one objective, to erase the shadow. And to me, that means... Until they know what the shadow is and who he is, what can they do? Stop and think how many criminals are either dead or in prison because of our activities. Why, even now, tonight, as we sit quietly here, somewhere, an innocent human being may be in desperate trouble. Somewhere, perhaps, there is a problem that can never be solved, except by the shadow. What did the doctor say, Grace? It was good news and, and bad, too, I'm afraid, dear. Well, whatever it was, dear, tell me. Well, he said the baby could be perfectly well again within a year. Oh, thank God for that. Poor kid. She's had a tough time. Well, what else? Well, this part isn't so good, Paul. She'll need treatments during all that time. Paul, treatments cost money. I know. Well, we'll have to manage somehow. You didn't do a very good job marrying me, dear. Darling. If I can only get a job. I've got my health and I've got brains. But no one seems to want them. Oh, they will, dear. They, they've got to. You're right about that. We're just about down to rock bottom. I've raised every cent I can on the house and car. There isn't anything left. You and I are still left, Paul. And we've got to take care of Sally. She's our daughter, Paul, and she's got to have her chance. And she's going to have it. Somehow. Tomorrow I'll start out and take anything I can get. Darling, perhaps tomorrow things will break for us. Yes. If only they don't break the wrong way. No more beds. Okay. Over here. How about some Excuse me, but... Are you the boss here? That's right. I'm looking for a job. Nothing doing, buddy. I'll do anything. Wait on table, wash dishes, anything at all. I don't need any more help. Well, how about delivering things? I've got a car. Nope. I don't deliver nothing. Sorry, I don't need you. I see. All right. Thanks. Hey. Hey, you. What? You calling to me? Yeah, sit down. Have a beer. No, thanks. I, I don't drink. Anyhow, sit down. I meet a friend of mine named Lefty. My name's Red. <laughs> Look at my hair and you'll know why. <laughs> well, I'm glad to meet you both. Gordon's my name, Paul Gordon. Well, did, do you want to talk to me about something? We might. Might be able to help you out. Sounds like you're looking for a job. You bet I am. I, I need one. You know anybody that could use me? Maybe. We don't know you yet. <laughs> so far as that goes... I don't know you either. So you read the guy smart. Yeah, maybe too smart. Now look here, Mr. Gordon. We need a car, and we need somebody to drive it for us. You understand? Well, I've got a car, and I can drive. Is it a good car? Has it got speed? I'll guarantee you up to 80. That's not bad. That's not bad. Now listen, kid. How about meeting us tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock? All right. Where? Well, let's see. Uh, we're going to... Um... I got it. Right in front of the Uptown Bank. We got to go there first to cash a check. Well... How about $5 a day? That's so. But you'll remember, be there at 9 o'clock or you don't get no job. <laughs> don't worry, I'll be there. I'll be there at 8 o'clock.
Hey, buddy, you can't keep this car in front of the bank all day. Can't you see that sign, no parking? I'm not parking, officer. I'm waiting for a couple of men. I'm working for them. Oh. Hey, what's that? It sounds like shots in the bank. Hey, there. Stop, Ariel. You got him, Lefty. Here he is with the car. Come on, you. Start that bus for him. Step on it, fella. Hey, but you can't do that. Get gone. I will show. Let him have it, Red. Hold him off. I'll hold him. We should never have shot that cop. Can't you get no more speed out of this car, fella? She's doing all she can. Shoot at the tires, Red. I missed him. Try the windshield. Say, let me out of this. Take the car. You think I'm in with you? That's just what we're figuring on. Now, here comes the curve. After you make that stop. Get ready, Red. I'm ready. I'm just leaving the evidence. Put it under the seat cushion. All right. Okay, goodbye, Gordon. Thanks for the Hey, hey, wait, you guys. Don't leave me like this. They'll think I did it. Hey, come on back, will you? Come back. Up with your hands. Come on, get them up. All right, officer. I haven't got a gun. I wasn't in this. They made me drive the car. Yeah, keep your hands up just the same. Go throw the car, Charlie. Okay, Sarge. Now, fella, you might as well come clean on this. I haven't done anything. I tell you, I'm innocent. Hey, Sarge, I got it. Under the rear seat cushion. A bag full of bills and a gun. That's the gun that bumped off my buddy, Louie. And you say you're innocent. Yes, I am. Well, it'll take more than saying so to keep you out of the electric chair. for you, Mrs. Gordon. You're not a reporter, are you? No, I'm a friend. I've come to help. Oh, the, then please come in. What is it you want, Miss Lane? Mrs. Gordon, your husband has a friend who's going to help him. Here's a thousand dollars in cash. What? That's for you and Sally. A thousand? Who was it sent this to me? Well, that I can't tell you. But the message with it is not to lose hope. Oh, then there is hope for Paul, then. The man who sent this to you never fails. Who is he? Well, that I can't tell you. But, Miss Lane, you know him. Sometimes I wonder whether I do. I love him. 
but I wonder whether I know him. What do you mean? It's hard to tell whether I really know the man or only his shadow. Well, Lefty, tonight the fall guy goes to the chair. That's what he gets for being a sucker. Yeah, there's not a clue that even points our way. Not even a print. We had gloves on all the time. You had yours off for a minute when you were sitting next to him. Yeah, but uh, I didn't touch the wheel. Then we ain't left a clue. You think so? Who said that? You, Lefty? No, I, I thought it was you. It was I. You cannot see me. Who are you? And where are you? I am here in the room. In the shadow. You have pinned your crime on an innocent man. He shall not suffer, but you will. I don't know who you are, where you are, but you're bluffing anyway. You got no evidence. We didn't leave a clue. You did leave a clue. A clue that will send you to the chair. Where was it? Where was it? You're lying. <laughs> Wouldn't you like to believe that? Keep thinking about it. Keep thinking about the clue that you forgot. <laughs> Margot Lane. Paul Gordon is in the death house and is to die in the chair tonight. I am going to him now. We can still save him. Stand by for orders. In a few moments, we will return to the shadow. But before we do, let me stress this one fact. For home heating, anthracite is best. And America's finest anthracite is blue coal. Anthracite is the healthful fuel. It gives steady, uniform heat that helps prevent colds and cuts down doctor's bills. For with anthracite, there is no quick chilling of the house, such as you get with fuels of the on and off type, or with quick-burning fuels that flare up and burn out. Bear in mind that heating plants in this part of the country were especially designed to burn anthracite. So before that coal snap catches you unaware, call your local blue coal dealer. You'll find his name listed in the where-to-buy-it section of your classified directory under the words Blue Coal. Call him tomorrow and order a supply of America's finest anthracite. Got any word from the governor? I'm sorry, Gordon. The governor refuses to take any action. Thank you. I've got to go. Tonight? At 11 o'clock. What? What time is it now? Almost 10. Is there anything I can do for you? No. Thank you, Gordon. Very well. These guards will move you to another cell. I'll be back in a little while. Ready, Gordon? Yes, Scott. We're just going to move you to another cell. <laughs> what does it matter? The one you're going to is nearer. <laughs> nearer to the chair, is that it? <laughs> All right. Let's go. All right, Gordon. Walk to the left. We'll be right here behind you.
Now knock the door into this preparation chamber, Pete. Okay. Just a second. All right. Go on through, Gordon. Watch him, Pete. I'll shut the door. Huh. What's the use of all this trouble? What chance have I got now? I'm afraid you haven't got much, fella. No, I wouldn't say that. What do you mean? Holy smokes. Look behind you. Where? There. Oh. Too bad. I hated to do that, but there wasn't any other way, and he'll only be out for a while. Now, Gordon, listen to me. Hey. Where are you? I can't see you anymore. Where have you gone? Back into the shadow. Now, Gordon, we haven't much time. Listen to me. No crime is perfect. There's always somewhere a loose end. The only reason that all crimes aren't solved is because there's some one fact that someone knows and doesn't tell. And sometimes they don't tell because they don't know that they know. I told everything I know in court. They wouldn't believe me then. Because you couldn't prove what you said. We are going after the proof now. You and I. How? I'm going to think with your mind. I don't know what you mean. Don't try to understand. Just do as I tell you. I want you to concentrate, Gordon. Fix your mind on everything that happened that day. Make mental pictures. I'll see what you see. I'll try it now. No. No, Gordon. Stop thinking about your wife and baby. How did you know I was thinking about I that? I saw it in your mind. I see in my mind the pictures you create in yours. Oh, like television? Yes, or like mental telepathy or mind reading, hypnotism, whatever you choose. There's no time to talk. Stop talking. Think. I will. I will. I'm thinking now. The picture is getting clearer. That's better. Go on. The restaurant? The bar? Gordon, stop thinking about the electric chair. It blurs the picture. I'll try. I'll try. Ah. That's better. The car. In front of the bank. Yes. I see it. The policeman. The crowd. Yes. Wait a minute. The small man with red hair. He was the one you called Red. Yes. Yes. I see him. Crooked nose. Short. Glasses. I know that man. He's Red Sloan. I... I... It's hard to see. I know. Think for your life. Try hard. Yes. You started the car. The other, Lefty, was in front with you. Lefty. Lefty. See him for me, Gordon. Ah, yes. A scar on his left cheek. Why didn't you mention that in court? I, I forgot. Never mind. Concentrate. Yes. Yes. Lefty couldn't keep you covered with a gun and look back at the same time. What did he do? He reached up and twisted 
The rear view mirror. Now we've got it. That's the loose end. That's where his thumbprint will be. Gordon, now I can save you. You've told the truth. You didn't know you knew. You're a fool for coming in here again. This is the place we picked up that kid that's burning tonight. What do you want to come in here for? This is as good a place as any, ain't it? Hey, telephone for you, Lefty. Telephone? Yeah. Maybe you never heard of it, but it's a great invention. But nobody knows I'm here. Well, somebody knows because they're waiting on the phone for you. It's over there on the wall. Okay. Don't be too long, Lefty. Hello? <laughs> Say, what are you laughing at? Who is this? Lefty, did you ever hear of the shadow? Yeah. Say, what is this? Too bad about young Gordon, isn't it, Lefty? What do you know about that? The shadow knows. Who are you? What do you want? I want justice. Justice for Paul Gordon, Lefty. And I'm going to get it. But you ain't got no evidence. No. Perhaps there are some fingerprints, Lefty. Oh, no. We had gloves on. There couldn't be no fingerprints. Did you have gloves on all the time? Yeah, sure. I did. You're left-handed. Now listen carefully, Lefty. When you were sitting in the front seat of Gordon's car, your gun was in your left hand. Remember? Say, you ain't nobody, I. It's just, say... How do you know? What did you do with your right hand? My right hand? You took off your right glove, didn't you? Oh, no, I didn't. I didn't. Oh, gosh, I'm going nuts. And you couldn't see the car that was chasing you because the angle of the rearview mirror was adjusted for the driver and you weren't driving, so... Do you remember what you did? No, no, I didn't. I didn't take it off. Are you sure you didn't reach up with your bare right hand and turn that rearview mirror? Are you sure, Lefty? No, no, I didn't. I didn't. Maybe I did. That. If the police find that fingerprint, you'll burn, Lefty. Just the way young Gordon's going to burn tonight. Goodbye, Lefty. <laughs> Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. He hung up. No. No. I won't burn. Hey, Red. Red! Yeah, it's certainly gab long enough. Say, who was the guy? Never no, the... mind that. Where's that car of Gordon's now? In his garage. I guess I heard his wife. Listen. What? I got a hunch. There's some fingerprints of mine in that car. Red, we gotta wipe more for there, or maybe we'll burn in that chair, too. Come on, let's go. Commissioner. I'm sorry, Miss Lane, but I don't see what we can do. But I tell you, Paul Gordon is innocent. The men who committed the crime are free. Where did you get this information? Oh, that I can't tell you. Uh, Miss Lane, Paul Gordon was convicted of murder by due processes of law. Tonight he pays for his crime in the electric chair. 
If the police listened to every crank who came in here claiming new evidence... But they can't send an innocent man to the chair. They can't do it. No, but they can send a guilty man. And according to the evidence, Paul Gordon is guilty. Commissioner, suppose that uh, afterwards, when it's too late, they discover that Paul Gordon wasn't guilty after all. And suppose I testify that the police refused to listen. Well, what do you want me to do? If it's within reason, I'll do that. I want you to I... send some men to that garage. I want you to catch the guilty men and see that justice is done. I'm frightened. Brace up, Gordon. It won't be long. Get your chin up, buddy. My turn next. <laughs> along, fella. Good luck. Bye-bye, kid. Where, where is he? He promised to save me. Who, son? I don't know. It was a voice. Just a voice. He... He said he'd stand by. Now, steady, old man. Don't lose your nerve, Gordon. Open it up, men. No. I will go in there. I didn't do it. I didn't kill him. I didn't, I tell you. He said he'd stand by. He wouldn't wait. Only a few minutes more. Just a few minutes. Don't take me in there yet. No, now, wait. Please, please. He said, please wait. Easy, Gordon. I'm sorry. But if I go in that door, I'm gone. It'll be too late then. Take him in, men. No, 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 wait. Oh, where are you? Where's that voice? Where did he go? Please come back. Warden. Warden. Wait a minute, men. Well, what is it? Warden, wait. The governor's on the phone. He says, stop. Hold up everything. What'd the governor say? He wants to talk to you on the phone, Warden. He says, don't electrocute this man. They've got the other two guys in Gordon's garage trying to rub out some fingerprints. One of them was shot and died. But before he died, he spilled it all. This fellow didn't do it. It was a frame-up. Oh, thank God he got me in time. Gordon. Gordon. Did you hear that? Yes. Yes, I heard it. That voice said he would. I'm free. You're not going to electrocute me, Warden. You're not. No. No, Gordon. The governor saved you. Governor? No. It wasn't the governor. It was somebody else. Or something else. Well, what do you mean, Gordon? Who saved you? I don't know. It was a voice. Just a voice. I never really saw him. He was only a shadow. Before another adventure with the shadow draws to a close, John Barclay, Blue Coal's heating expert, would like to say a few words. Mr. Barclay. Good evening, friends. If you're interested in having a more comfortable home this winter, be sure to call your local Blue Coal dealer. For he's more than a fuel dealer. He's an authority on modern home heating. You see, for more than six years, I've trained servicemen for these Blue Coal dealers. These men, known as John Barclay servicemen, have added thousands of... Families like yours to enjoy a greater degree of comfort and to save heating dollars, too. I'm going to read part of a letter typical of many received from satisfied customers using Blue Coal and John Barclay service. I quote in part, The service rendered by your John Barclay service men has been invaluable to me. We were burning a ton of coal a week and having great difficulty in keeping our fire going throughout the night. Your service man made me many helpful suggestions regarding the proper way to regulate the furnace and recommended the use of blue coal. We not only reduced the amount of fuel consumed to one half, but actually got more heat. Think of that, friends. 
In this case, a family cut their fuel bill in half simply by following the advice of a John Barclay serviceman whose services were given without charge. Now, you don't have to buy blue coal to benefit from John Barclay service. No matter what kind of fuel you're using or from whom you've been buying, if you have any heating problems, consult the blue coal dealer. He'll be very glad to place his John Barclay serviceman at your disposal to solve your problems. I thank you. The story you have just heard is copyrighted by The Shadow Magazine. Real names are never used in these shadow stories. <laughs> the weed of crime bears bitter fruit. Crime does not pay. The shadow knows. Mysterious Traveler. This is the Mysterious Traveler, inviting you to join me on another journey into the realm of the strange and the terrifying. I hope you will enjoy the trip, and it will thrill you a little and uh, chill you a little. So settle back and get a good grip on your nerves. If you can. Where are we going? Why, tonight we're going on a little excursion into the realm of pure imagination. You've all heard the old saying, believe in a thing enough and it'll come true. Well, suppose, just suppose many people came to believe in something, something that couldn't possibly be real. Such as an artificial monster growing in a scientist's laboratory. What would happen? Well, if you want to know what might happen, uh, listen to the story I call... If You Believe. My story begins in a rambling old house deep in the woods. In a homemade laboratory, gray-haired Professor Jonathan Davis is peering eagerly into a large glass container that holds an odd, transparent, jelly-like substance. Ellen! Oh, Ellen! Yes, sir? Ellen, come quick. I'm coming, dear. What is it? Ellen, look. I think... I think I've succeeded at last. Oh, Dad. You look. Your eyes are better than mine. Yes? Isn't there movement in the protoplasm this time? Isn't it stirring... Just a little? No, Dad. There isn't any movement. No? You're positive, Ellen? I, 
I was sure I saw some sign of life. I'm quite positive, Dad. Now, please, won't you admit that what you're trying to do is impossible? No, Ellen. No, I will succeed. I know it. Now, come, we've got to try another feeding mixture. If you hand me the saline solution and dextrose, and I'll begin again. But while Professor Davis labored in his lonely seclusion to make a lifelong dream come true, something that was to affect him vitally was happening in the editorial room of the largest newspaper in the nearby city. Steady desk, Benson speaking. Oh, oh, hello, Mr. McGuire. Yes? Well, yes, sure, I've been reading Dan Duncan's special features. I edit them. I see. You don't think they've been colorful enough lately, huh? Well, to tell the truth, I agree with you. I've been meaning to speak to him about it. Yes. Sure, I'll do it now. He just came in. Right. Right. Good night, Mr. McGuire. Hey, Dan. Yeah, Joe. What cooks? The big boss just phoned down. What's he want? Well, frankly, he thinks you're slipping. McGuire thinks I'm slipping. Well, I like that. That's what he said. And I've done everything to get hot material except to go out and commit a murder myself. Well, maybe he's tired of murders. You want to know why you don't turn up something like that haunted house story you did last spring? Why, I don't. <laughs> that was a good story, wasn't it? There was a honey. Yeah. Especially the description of the way the ghost of the drowned girl walked around the house, leaving wet spots where it stepped. You know, I caught a heck of a cold walking around in wet socks to make those footmarks. No more than you deserve for faking a story. You're faking a story. Listen, Benson, any time a million readers believe a story, it's true. And they believed in that ghost. Every one of them. I'm not saying they didn't, but McGuire wants another story just as good. I've got a good mind to tell the old buzzer to fly a kite. Another story like... Hey. Huh? What is it? I think I got it. Hey, Ted. Ted Jones. Oh, yeah, Dan. Front and center. Oh. Yeah, what is it, Dan? All right, dump your camera on the desk and sit. Okay. Now, tell me, what was that story you told me last week about some professor living up in the woods back of town, never coming out of his private lab? Oh, you mean uh, Professor Davis? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Well, what about him? There was a fuss over something he said in the lecture one day, wasn't there? A fuss? Well, it was more like an explosion. Hey, wait a minute. I remember that case. The professor claimed he could create an artificial man, wasn't that it? No, 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 no. He said that an artificial man might be produced someday. Uh, might be. Well, the paper said he claimed he could create one. Yeah, I know. Well, it made a good story, didn't it? And drove Professor Davis out of the university into retirement. Oh, the school didn't like the publicity. Water under the bridge, kid. Anyway, here's the old professor working away secretly for the last five years. All alone? No, no, he, he wasn't all alone. His daughter Ellen's with him. How old is she? Oh, she was 15 then, so... She's 20 now. Good looking? Well, I was in Professor Davis's class. I remember as a... Well, it's a skinny brat with uh, yellow hair. Yeah, good, a blonde. So here's the prof secretly working with his beautiful blonde daughter at what? I'll bite. What? Why, he's trying to prove he was right. He's trying to create a, an artificial man. Say, you've got something there. Oh, now, wait a minute. You don't know Professor Davis is trying to create artificial life. Well, we soon will. You know where his hideout is, don't you? Yeah. All right, then grab your camera. Let's get going. Oh, no, wait a minute, Dan. Suppose you find Professor Davis is... Ah, forget it. Benson, save me two columns. Come on, Ted. 
We're on our way. There, Evan. It's done. Now we must warm it ever so gently. It'll stay at blood heat until morning. And then, Ellen... Oh, I hope so, Dad. But, darling, if you fail again, won't you please promise me to stop trying to create this artificial protoplasm? Well, we'll talk about that in the morning. Now, uh... Oh, who could that be? I'll go see, Dad. Yes? I'm Ted Jones, Miss Davis. I don't suppose you remember me. Ted Jones? Oh, you were one of Father's students, weren't you? Yes, that's right. I'm a newspaper photographer now. Uh, could we come in? I have a friend with me, a reporter. Ellen, and... who is it? Uh, newspaper men, Dad. They want to see you. Newspaper men, don't let them in. Send them away. I right, come now, Professor. We just want to ask you a couple of questions, and uh, but we can talk better inside, so... Uh... There. Now we can talk like friends. Hey, but, Dan, we weren't invited in. How dare you force your way in here? Get out, both of you. Please go. Dan, come on. Professor Davis doesn't want to talk to us. Keep your shirt on, Ted. Just a couple of questions, Professor. Now, isn't it true that hidden away here, you're creating artificial life? I won't answer your questions. You just print more lies and ruin everything I'm trying to do. Then you are creating artificial life, huh? Young man, I... Tell me how far you've gotten. You figuring on springing an artificial man on us one of these days? You fools. While I still struggle to create synthetic protoplasm, you talk of artificial men. Go, go before I throw you out. Please go, please. Come on, Dan, we're leaving. Okay, we're going. Thanks for the interview, Professor. Read all about it in tomorrow's curse. The imbeciles. What do they know of science? All they want is to cheapen my work. Make it a sensation for the headlines. Oh, please, Father, you must get control of yourself. They've gone now. Yes, yes, dear. They shan't interfere with my work. Well, come, we must adjust the heat and... Ellen. Ellen. Yes, Dad, what is it? Ellen, the mixture's moving. This time I'm sure of it. The protoplasm... It's alive. Say, Dan, this is something. Huh? Behind bolted doors deep in the woods, Professor Jonathan Davis toils night and day to create the world's first synthetic man. In a great vat lies a strange caricature of humanity. It has a head, arms, legs, a body... All of them fashioned of a pale green substance like gelatin. Nice touch, huh? Day by day, life stirs more strongly in this grotesque creation of science. Someday it may breathe, walk, eat. Now look, Dan, aren't you going pretty strong? Ah, forget it. The old man wants a story, doesn't he? Besides, the professor really is working on synthetic protoplasm. Maybe he has got a pale green monster in his bathtub. How do I know? Okay, Dan, but you're, if you're faking this story, I know nothing about it. Faking it? You know I never fake stories. Okay. We'll set this up and put it in the press wires. By noon tomorrow, 40 million people will be believing in Professor Davis' artificial monster. By noon tomorrow, I'll be believing in it myself. People read the story and marveled and believed. While in the laboratory hidden in the woods. Oh, look. This time, 
This time it is alive. It is. There can be no doubt of it. Elizabeth, he's certainly moving, Dad. Yes, see? And the protoplasm is breathing. Listen. You can hear it. I've created artificial life, Ellen. Yes, I'm, I'm afraid so, Dad. Afraid so? What do you mean? I'd like to see their faces down at the university when they hear of this. It's grown since last night. Yes, it has. The cells are multiplying like true protoplasm. That's why I transferred it to the staff tank. Now I'm at that salt, acid, phosphorus. Oh, that, that must be grocery boy. Excuse me, Dad. Yes? Oh, you... Uh, Miss Davis, I hope that you'll let me apologize. We have nothing to say to you. Please don't shut the door before I explain. Explain? There's nothing to explain. You force your way in here. I came to apologize for that. Well, have you seen the morning papers? We're not interested in the papers. I'm afraid you'll be interested in this one. Look. Oh, how outrageous. That story of your father creating an artificial man is in every paper in the country, and I... Well, I feel I'm to blame, and... I want to make up for it. Can I come in so we can talk? I guess you'd better, Mr. Jones. But Dad mustn't see this paper. Oh, no, no, of course not. But won't he recognize me? No, I don't think so. He's very nearsighted. I'll just tell him that you used to be one of his students. And if you'll tell me the real truth, I'll try to get the paper to understand that Dan Duncan just made up his story. Who is it, Ellen? Uh, it, it's Ted Jones, Dad, one of your former students. He, he mm-hmm. called to say hello. Jones, eh? Jones? Yes. Ted Jones? Oh, yes, yes, of course. Organic chemistry, wasn't it, Joe? Oh, yes, sir. <laughs> You're the one who kept breaking things. <laughs> oh, Jones, I-, I have something here you'd be very interested in. Come and see. Yes, sir. Look. That stuff in the tank. It's be alive. It is alive. Synthetic protoplasm, my boy, the first ever created. Breathing, yes, and it's also growing. Life becomes stronger in it by the moment. It's changing color, Dad. Becoming a pale green. Yes, growing fast. Very fast. I never dreamed that success would come completely. Hi, Dan. I thought I'd find you here. Why, Dan. Dan Duncan himself. Hiya, Professor. What do you want here? Oh, just a few pictures. Shot of you in your lab, so forth. You have the nerve to come here after what you've done. What I've done? You haven't seen anything yet. You and your father are big news now. You're going to be bigger. Dan, you'd better go. Better go? I don't follow you, kid. I said you'd better go. There isn't any story here for you. No story? Hey, what's eating you? Aren't you here to get a follow-up? No, I came here to get the truth. Something you wouldn't be interested in. Hey, what kind of talk is that? Are you going to go or will I have to throw you out? Throw me out? Now listen, kid. You want me to try it? All right, I will. Okay. Okay, Okay, I'm going. Take your hands off me. But don't think you can get away with this. You're fired. And that's all right with me. And as for you, Professor, you and your artificial man are going to be so well-known in a day or two, you'll be getting offers from Hollywood. And so, with each edition of the papers, the headlines grew bigger. Telegraph wires carried editorials condemning Professor Davis. Is it a man or is it a monster Professor Davis has created? By his refusal to answer questions, the professor led us to suspect that... Radio commentators spread the story to still more listening millions. 
like pale green gelatin. Now it moves and stirs in its confinement, seeking to escape this strange creation of the tentacles. And speakers denounce Professor Davis. And I ask you, can science be permitted to venture into these forbidden realms unchecked? Who knows what horror may emerge from the laboratory if we are not careful? This mad thing must be stopped. Stop! Who is this? Oh, it's me, Ted. Oh. Ted, did you have any trouble? No, no, I got the medicine for your father, all right, and I, I brought the evening papers, too. What do they say? Pretty bad. They're all using Duncan's story, and he shot the works. Ted, how can he do such a thing? Well, he's a very plausible writer. He has a knack for making people believe him. If anybody accuses him of lying, he'll just say that he was misled by your father. I see. I'm sorry you lost your job trying to help us. That doesn't matter. I was about ready to quit anyway. How, how is your father now? He seems to be sleeping quietly. Well, I'm sticking around until he's all right again. Well, you don't have to do that, Ted. I'll make out. If I hadn't gotten into that fight with Duncan, your father might not have had his stroke. No, it was just the excitement. It's his heart, but I know how to take care of him. But, Ted, I'm frightened. About your father? No. No, about it. The protoplasm. Oh. It's changed just since this morning. It's changed? How? It's grown and... Well, come on, see for yourself. All right. Helen, it seems to be taking on shape. Yes, and it looks... Oh, Ted, it looks like green gelatin. The way Duncan describes it. And look, there's a vague shape like a head and, and the rough outline of arms and legs. Oh, oh it isn't possible. It shouldn't be, but it's happening. Something terrible is taking place inside that glass tank. I don't understand. Your father certainly never intended to create this. You know, all afternoon I've been wondering if father really has created it. I don't follow you, Ellen. You, you mean some outside force might be responsible? Ted, you know the old saying, believe in a thing enough and it'll come true. Yes, of course. Well, I think that's true. The power of belief is a tremendous thing. People begin to believe that... Well, that there's going to be a depression, and there is a depression. But, Ellen... They begin to believe that strangers and foreigners are enemies. And pretty soon they are enemies. They believe there's going to be a war. And war comes. Well, that's true, but what are you getting at? How many people are reading Dan Duncan's story this very minute, right now, while we're talking? Well, hundreds of thousands, probably, all over the nation. Maybe a million. And they all believe it's true. Well, a good many of them. Yes, Dan has a genius for being plausible. Then don't you see, Ted? Here in this laboratory is the necessary material for a monster. Huh. And out there are all those people believing in such a fantastic monster. You mean... You mean a million people are thinking life into the protoplasm. Yes, Ted. I know it sounds fantastic, but that monster was never created by my father. Dan Duncan created it when he wrote about it. Well, if that's true... There's no other answer. Over there in that glass tank is something that's alive only because millions of people believe it's alive. No, it is alive. There's no telling what it may become. 
Ellen, we have to destroy it. It'll break Dad's heart, but we can't let it live. Well, it's growing bigger by the minute. We've got to get rid of it now before it grows any larger. There's acid in those bottles there. That'll destroy it. All right. Yeah, yeah, I see it. Here. Just as soon as I get it open, it'll take care of the creature. Be careful, Ted. It, it can burn you dreadfully. Ellen, Ellen, what's happening? What are you doing? Dad, darling, you're supposed to be in bed. I'm feeling better. I wanted to see how the protoplasm was. Please go back to bed, Dot. Your heart. Oh, my heart's all right, but I must be sure. Oh, it's changed. Taken on a form. Yes, Professor. A monstrous, unnatural form. It has a head, arms, legs. But it can't have it. It's only protoplasm. It's all impossible. Unfortunately, it's true. I can't explain now, but, well, we've got to destroy it. No, no. The combination of my life's work. You can't destroy we it. We must, then. No, no, I won't let you. It's the only thing to do. Professor, look at it. it it's crawling around inside the tank now. It's, it, it's trying to climb out. But it can't be dangerous. It's just harmless protoplasm. Dad, Ted is right. You've got to let us kill it. It's just protoplasm, I tell you. It was just protoplasm. Stand back, Professor. I'm going to empty this acid on No, no, you mustn't. I will. Dad! Dad! Professor Tank. He, he fell against the tank and broke it. Is he hurt, Ted? Well, I'll see. Oh. Ted, the protoplasm is moving toward him. We've got to get him out of here. I have his arms. Quick, you take his feet. I have right. Oh, hurry up, Ted. He's trying to crawl out of the tank. We've got to get him upstairs. Can you manage it? Yes, yes. Come on. All right, easy now, easy. All right, just a little farther. All right, one more step, Ellen. There. Here's the landing. We can, we can put him down here. Now, easy. Easy. There. Ted. Ted, I can't find his pulse. Let me try. Dad? Ted, no use. He's gone. I'm afraid so. His heart failed him. I've always known it would someday. Ted, down in the laboratory. Yes, it's moving. Look, it's gotten out of the tank and it's crawling all around the lab. And the only way out... Is down those stairs and through the lab. We're trapped up here. Look, I'm not saying it isn't a good story, Dan. It's a whale of a story. But McGuire wants some pictures. Pictures? How can I get pictures? I can't even get into the place. I don't care. Just get them. You want me to bust in the window, I suppose? Let your conscience be your guide. And I know you haven't got a conscience. But make it fast. I want those shots for the late morning edition. All right. I'm going. With a camera in one hand and a bunch of skeleton keys in the other. It's looking for food, Ted. Yes, and it's getting frantic. Look how it crawls back and forth through the lab. It's been doing that for an hour now. Look how enormous it's grown. <sighs> Suppose it tries to come up these stairs to this balcony. Well, it may not. It, it has no eyes, no intelligence. It, it's just protoplasm, blindly seeking food. But suppose it does try to come up the stairs. Well, then we'll stop it. I have the gun here that I found in your father's desk. I'll, I'll use that on it. I don't think it would even feel a bullet. Well, we'll see. There. There, it's on the other side of the lab now, in plain sight. Stand back, dear, and I'll, I'll try a couple of shots. I hit it. It didn't even notice. No. If we could only reach those bottles of acid, that would fix it. But every time we've started down the stairs, it's rushed over to wait for us. I must feel the vibration, but... I 
going to take one more try. Ted, please be careful. Yes, I will. Tiptoe down one step at a time. Perhaps I can avoid attracting its attention this time. What's it doing now? Lying quiet, as if it was listening. Only lie quiet a few seconds more. I'm almost at the bottom. Ted, quick! It's coming this way! Yes, it did touch my foot, but I wasn't interested in getting any better acquainted. What are we going to do now? I don't know. I don't know, Ellen. I don't know if we could only reach that acid. Say, I wonder if it would make any difference if we turned out the lights. They can be controlled from up here, can't they? Oh, yes, but what good would that do? Well, in the dark, it might become inactive. Some elementary organisms are like that. Well, we can try it. Okay, I'll, I'll turn out the lights. There. Pitch black now. But it's still moving around. Just wait a moment. Listen. What is it, Tim? I heard footsteps outside the house. Footsteps? Just listen. Someone coming in the front door. Yeah, there's someone in the lab. But who would... Good heavens, oh... Duncan, is that you, Dan? Dan, answer me. Is that you? Get out. Get out. Quick. Okay, kid. Keep your shirt on. I'm going as soon as I get a picture of this joint. But, Dan, you don't understand. It's loose. Get away. Quick. Ellen, turn on that light. Yes, kid. <laughs> you can't scare me, kid. I came to get a picture, and I'm going to get it. <gasps> run, Dan. Run. run. Get help me. Ellen, Ellen, don't go. Don't go. Don't go. Oh, we've got to save. Quick, Ellen, the ass. Oh, Dan, hurry. Oh, oh. Here, you take this one. Oh, I'll take one. We'll break them over. Understand? Yes. Well, come on, then. He's gone. Duncan's gone. He's covering him. Eating him. Oh. Ellen, throw your bottle now. Don't feel like that. Of course, it's enough to kill anything. The acid is burning into it. It's killing it. Ellen is dying. It's not moving anymore. It's not breathing either. We've killed it. It's starting to melt away. It's dissolving. Now that it's dead, it's turning back into the liquid it started from. The substance that the belief of millions gave an unreal life to. It's gone back to a liquid now. There's nothing left of it. It's gone as if it had never existed. Except for Dan Duncan. Oh, There's nothing we can do for him, Ellen. He's dead. He created the monster. It's killed him. Maybe it's true about believing in things and making them happen. Wars and depressions and uh, artificial monsters and things like that. I think I'll make a New Year's resolution to be careful what I believe in 1947. Uh, No more believing in bogeymen or spooks. I might meet one. Instead, I'll try believing in some of the... uh, some of the nicer things for a change. 
such as peace and goodwill among nations. Well, if I can get enough people to join me, maybe they'll come true and... Oh, you'll have to get off here. I'm sorry. But I'm sure we'll meet again. I take this same train every week at this time. You've just heard The Mysterious Traveler, a series of dramas of the strange and terrifying. In today's cast were Maurice Toplin, Chuck Webster, Louise Fitch, Wendell Holmes, Edgar Staley, and Bill Smith. Original music was played by Doc Whipple. The Mysterious Traveler is written, produced, and directed by Bob Arthur and David Kogan. And now, a preview of next week's strange and shivery story by The Mysterious Traveler. It's only two days now to New Year's Eve. Were you planning a big celebration to greet 1947? I'd be careful if I were you. Because, you see, our story next week is about a man who did just that. In fact, it was such a big celebration that when he got over it, it wasn't 1947 at all, but 1948. He lost a whole year out of his life. And when he finally got the year back, well, what happened to him shouldn't happen to a werewolf. So take it easy, New Year's Eve, so you'll be sure to be on hand next week for the strange and terrifying tale I call New Year's Nightmare. The Mysterious Traveler is presented from our New York studios. Carl Caruso speaking. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. For a behind-the-scenes glimpse into the workshops of the nation's top mystery writers, be sure to hear Mr. Mystery every week. The famous creators of your favorite fiction bafflers will be guests of Mr. Mystery. You'll hear short, short mystery dramatizations as well. Don't miss your chance for Plus Mystery Entertainment and hear Mr. Mystery and a well-known guest expert every week over most of these stations. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System.
please, may I have your attention? Very well. I didn't ask you to come to my humble apartment tonight to endeavor to stun you with my superior knowledge of crime and criminals. I've asked you here only to prove to you that the murders in the Rue Morgue present no great insoluble mystery. Monsieur Dupin, if you think the case is so obvious, tell me, who is the murderer? He will be here shortly, Monsieur le Prefect of Police. Here? Who is it? The murderer here. Gentlemen, I give you my word as a man of honor that he will be here in my apartment at precisely 10 o'clock this evening. How can you be so sure? I have asked him to come. Oh. It is exactly 9 o'clock now, gentlemen. And in the hour remaining to us before we meet the murderer... I shall explain to you as simply as I can how I managed to arrive at my conclusion. Yes, you, Monsieur Dupin. I'm always interested in guesswork. Guesswork, my dear fellow? This is not guesswork. No. Now, gentlemen, let us retrace the case. The story begins, if I'm not mistaken, with Madame L'Espagne and her daughter Camille on the afternoon of December 16th, 1841. Uh, well, of course, you're correct so far anyway, Dupin. I bow, Monsieur le Prefect. Madame Lespanet and her daughter Camille entered the Bank of France at precisely 2.45 in the afternoon to transact important business. Ah, Madame Lespanet, I've been waiting for you. So good of you, Monsieur Lebon. Have you met my daughter Camille? I don't think I've had the pleasure. How do you do, Mademoiselle? How do you do, Monsieur Lebon? Are you quite sure, Madame Lespanet, that you wish to withdraw all this money at this time? Quite positive. But 4,000 francs is a great deal to keep about one's household, Madame. I'm quite aware of the danger involved, Monsieur Lebon. But if the bank keeps this withdrawal quiet, nobody else need know that I have a sum of money in the house. Well, things do get about, Madame. There's no use inviting unnecessary danger. The danger is my problem, Monsieur Lebon. I think we'd better let the matter drop at that. Have you uh, any protection against possible thievery at home, Madame? Ah, uh, no, Monsieur. But Mama and I have protection enough. We bolt and lock our doors. It's absolutely impossible for anybody to enter the house unless he should break the door down. But does any male protector live in the house? My husband died many years ago. Madame misunderstands me. I'm only asking these questions for your own good. Two unprotected women living alone in a large house can invite trouble. Don't that you... is our problem. If Madame insists. And I do insist. Very well, Madame. I have the money here. I myself will see you both home to ensure safe delivery. But let me warn you now. The minute you arrive in your home on the Rue Morgue, the Bank of France resigns all future responsibility. We understand, Monsieur Le Bon. We understand perfectly. So, gentlemen, the first step in this little tragedy was completed. Madame Espanay and her daughter insisted on taking the money home from the bank. Monsieur Lebon drove them in his carriage to their house, the large, bleak house, number 12, Rue Morgue. When they arrived there, Monsieur Lebon looked about for the gendarme who was in charge of that particular block. Oh! Oh! May I help you out, Mademoiselle Camille? Oh, thank you, Monsieur Lebon. Madame? Thank you. Thank you. Is that the gendarme on the corner, the gendarme usually on this block? Not having had any reason to talk to the gendarme, Monsieur Lebon, I wouldn't know. Yes, I think it is, Monsieur. Gendarme! Gendarme! All this fuss over a little money. Really, you'd think we were incapable of taking care of ourselves. Well, I think Monsieur Lebon is very thoughtful, Maman. Gendarme! Coming, Monsieur, coming. Do you live on the first floor, Madame L'Espanay? On the fourth floor, in the back of the house. 
I own this house, and I've shut up all the other rooms. You mean this entire house is unoccupied you except... You called me, monsieur. Yes, I did. I want you to keep a special watch on this house for the next week or so. Madame Lespinay and her daughter will have a considerable amount of money in the house. I will watch the house like a watchdog. You would be better off if you did it like a man. Then you'd use your head instead of your feet. Monsieur! What is your name, gendarme? Gendarme Isidore Musée. Very well. Gendarme Isidore Musée. I leave these ladies in your care. You needn't worry about a thing, mademoiselle. And madame. I'm sure we won't. That is, as long as you don't spread the news around the neighborhood that we've got 4,000 francs hidden here in the house. Who, me, madame? I am the law, and your secret is safe with me. <laughs> Come along, Mama. I'm getting hungry. Yes, dear. Thank you so much for all you've done, Monsieur Le Bon. It is nothing, mademoiselle, nothing at all. Just a courtesy extended by the Bank of France. I'll keep good watch. Be assured of that. <laughs> I'll keep very good watch. Gentlemen, gentlemen, let us proceed to the next event. Gendarme Isidore Musée kept a very good watch on number 12 Rue Morgue. At 11 o'clock the evening of the tragedy, he strolled into the shop two doors away from number 12 to buy a pouch of tobacco and to chat with his very good friend Pierre Moreau, a tiny man known as the neighborhood gossip. Uh, good evening, uh, good evening, good evening, friend Isidore, good evening. Good uh, evening. I've been waiting for you, yes, I've been waiting for you. You usually drop in at nine o'clock. And I said to myself, as I sat here waiting for you, I said, uh, where's my good friend Isidore? It's been a busy evening this evening. That's what I said to myself. If Isidore doesn't drop in to buy his usual box of tobacco, he's busy. There must be big news abroad, but then <laughs> how could there be big news abroad on this block? That's what I said. You were wrong, Pierre. Very wrong. Wrong, eh? Uh, there is big news. Thievery? No. Uh, murder? No. Well, then, <laughs> I give up. It's a secret. Secret? What could be a secret? Somebody got married. That's no secret. Somebody died. That's no secret either. A child is ill, a contagious disease, an epidemic, or Paris will be infected? No. Well, I can't guess. If you promise not to tell a soul... Oh, not a soul. Well, Madame Lespinier... Yes? ...and her daughter Camille... Yeah. ...have withdrawn 4,000 francs from the bank today... ...and have it hidden in the house somewhere. No. And I must stand on guard. Oh, naturally, naturally. But don't tell a soul. No, not a soul. On my honor, not a single soul, Isidore. My word of honor, I swear it now. And so, by midnight, gentlemen, the entire neighborhood in the Rue Morgue was buzzing. 4,000 francs in the Lespinay household. I hear it was 10,000. Two women all alone. Imagine it. 20,000 francs. I wonder where... And all that jewelry must be a veritable fortune hidden away. Do you know what they say? She's got money hidden in every corner of the house. Imagine almost a million francs in that house. I always knew there was something strange about those two women living all alone in a house like that. And in the rear... Fourth floor. Yes, sitting in the bedroom of the fourth floor rear. But while the neighborhood was busy gossiping and chattering, Mademoiselle Camille and her mother were completely unaware of the commotion they had caused. It was almost three in the morning. 
Camille had just finished undressing, and her mother was sitting in front of the mirror, brushing her hair so that they didn't notice the window opening in back of them. I'm so tired, Mama. Poor Camille. It's been a very busy day. You know, I thought that Monsieur Le Bon was very nice. He seems fairly affable. Oh, Mama, fairly affable. I thought he was perfectly charming. So concerned over us. <laughs> no man ever gets that concerned over me. Must have been you, darling. <laughs> All men see. <laughs> Mama! Stay calm, Camille. Don't Mama, move. Mama, he's got a razor in his hand. Don't move, Camille. Mama, quick. Let's hide. He's coming closer. Where, Camille? Where shall we go? Into the closet, Mama. Oh, quickly, Mama, into the closet. Close the door. Mama, he'll break the door down. He'll break the door down, Mama. Watch out, Camille. He's breaking it down. Quite right, gentlemen. Simply ghastly. We fully realize that this is a horrible atrocity, but we must remain factual. While all this was going on on the fourth floor of number 12, Rue Morgue, the gendarme Isidore Musée, the little tobacconist Pierre Moreau, Monsieur Lebon, who, strangely enough, was in the neighborhood at that very moment, and a passerby, a sailor, all four were attracted by the screams of the two women. And immediately tried to break into number 12, uh -huh. Morgue. Now stand back, everybody, while I break the door down. Stand back. This is the gendarme's job. Uh, break it down, Isidore. Break it down. Uh, uh, follow me, everybody. Up these stairs to the fourth floor. Down right behind you, Isidore. Right behind you. Now on the next flight. Keep going. Wait a minute. Wait. Wait. Listen to that. He's speaking Italian. No, no. It's Russian, Isidore. No, Italian, Pierre. I think it's Polish. How he stopped speaking, hasn't he? Yes. Probably escaped. Yes, probably. I wonder. Try the door. Uh. Uh, can you open it, Isidore? No. It's locked. I, I think we're too late. I'm sure of it, sailor. I warned you about this gendarme. Well, let's let's break the door down. One, two, uh. oh, three. Look. Look. What? Oh, the entire room is wrecked. Just exactly as if a maniac had torn up the place. The bed's torn apart. Yes. It's... I've sailed the seven seas, but I've never seen a place look like this in my entire life. Monsieur Le Bon, where are Mademoiselle Camille and, and her mother? I don't know. They're not in here. Look. Where? They're in the fireplace. Oh. It's Mademoiselle Camille. Dead. Yes. Dead. Dead. Poor girl. 
Here, help me, somebody. Yes, help me lift her up. Look. Look out this window. Huh? The old woman is lying in the courtyard below. The sailor's right. Absolutely right. She's lying in the courtyard below, dead as a dead fish. Oh, probably twice as dead. Somebody is guilty of this. Somebody. And as a member of the Paris police, I mean to find out who that guilty person is. Yes, gentlemen. Isidore Musée Gendarme swore up and down that he would find the murderer. Well, at four o'clock that morning, I was awakened from a sound sleep and called to number 12 Rue Morgue to examine the evidence. Monsieur Le Gendarme Musée was running around the room destroying the evidence, or at least what little evidence there was, as fast as he unearthed it. The three gentlemen who had been there with him were still waiting round out of a combined feeling of horror and curiosity. The sailor, whose name escaped me, was sitting on what was left of a bed, staring blankly around the room. Monsieur Pierre Moreau, the tobacconist, was watching Isidore Musée, the gendarme, play detective. He played it badly. And Monsieur Le Bon was the picture of dejection. I entered the room and gazed about while Isidore supplied me with all the facts in the case, at least from his point of view. And, and that is exactly what happened, Monsieur Duvin. Very interesting, Monsieur Isidore Musée. And uh, now, gentlemen, I wish to ask just a few questions. Of course, no, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, now, all of you seem to think you heard the voice of the murderer. Yes, yes, indeed. Well, we did definitely. No doubt about it. And uh, you, Monsieur Isidore Musée, you are... Positive that the murderer is an Italian? Positive, Monsieur Dupin. Absolutely positive. I could tell by his, uh, his intonation. Hmm? Do you speak Italian? Oh, no. Definitely not. Have you ever heard Italian spoken? No, Monsieur, never. But I imagine... Yes? You imagine what? Oh, I imagine it would sound like that. I see. And uh, you, Monsieur Le Bon... You said it was Polish. Definitely Polish, without a doubt. I judge you have lived in Poland a long time yet? No, no, but I heard Polish spoken once. Once? Yes. That makes you an excellent judge of the Polish language. Uh, how about you, Monsieur Pierre Moreau? What language did you say it was? Uh, Russian, I thought, uh, but that's only a guess, since I admit, and I admit it very freely, I'm not a man to hedge. Uh, I've never heard a word of Russian in my life. Mm, uh, I thought so. And how about you, Sarah? I, I thought it was Dutch. I don't speak the Dutch language, but I've heard a considerable amount of Dutch spoken when I was in Holland eight years ago. Eight years ago. Hmm? I, uh, I don't mean to make a suggestion, Monsieur Dupin, but Monsieur Lavant was the only man beside myself who knew about the money being kept in this house. What are you insinuating, Monsieur Musée? Insinuating? <laughs> I'm an officer of the law, and I think it was very peculiar that you should just happen to be in this neighborhood at three o'clock in the morning. Don't you live in this neighborhood, Monsieur Lebon? No, but I've good reason to be here. Oh, so? Suppose you tell us. Well, I was worried about Mademoiselle Camille. I was rather attracted to the young lady. And, well, I had a feeling that there would be trouble over the money... Well, I was in the corner cafe having some tea until about ten minutes before the murder occurred. And then you strolled by the house on your way home, correct? Quite correct. Now, my tobacco store is open all night. All tobacco stores are open all night, Monsieur Pierre Moreau. I was just walking by. I didn't steal the money. But naturally. 
Nobody stole the money. It's in the safe behind this wall. Huh? Are you positive, Monsieur Dupin? Perfectly obvious that the money hasn't been touched. These murders were far too cruel to be instigated by man's greedy desire for financial reward. Here, let me open the safe and show you. I, uh... Happen to know an interesting combination that will open any safe. <laughs> I should have been a thief. So, there. That ought to open it. Oh, it did. Naturally. Now, look. There's the 4,000 francs, safe and snug as a 4,000 franc group of notes should be. Well, perhaps Monsieur Lebon was interrupted in the midst of his thievery. Perhaps he, he, he didn't have time to finish. Well, nonsense. Monsieur Lebon was with you when you walked up the stairs. Well, an accomplice, perhaps. No, 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 Monsieur Isidore Musée. Let me show you something. Look at the fingerprints on this girl's neck. Very strong, heavy prints. And very large, too. Why, yes. The murderer must have been a giant. His hand must have been twice as large as mine, and I have a large hand as hands. Yes, yes. The murderer was a giant. A giant with extraordinary strength. Gentlemen, I think now I have sufficient clues. Uh, look at this window. It's, it's just a window. Yes, just a window with a cord on it. A broken piece of cord. Clue number one. Clue number two. Look. Look at the dead girl's hand. Huh? Why? She has some hair clutched in her hand. Quite correct. And with this cord and this hair... I can find the murderer. Gentlemen, go home. Go home, get a good night's sleep, and I'll hand the murderer over to the prefect of police very soon. Monsieur Dupin, <clears throat> uh, don't forget to mention that I helped you. I'm, I'm due for promotion soon. And so, messieurs, that is the story. And you have the fact. A piece of cord... And some hair. The condition of the room, the strength of the murderer, the passion of the deed, the lack of motivation, should all suggest to you the very same thing it suggested to me. Monsieur Dupin, you are talking in circles. Circles? So? You mean to say you still don't know who the murderer is? No, of course I don't know. And frankly, Monsieur Dupin, I don't think you know either. <laughs> really, gentlemen. R really, gentlemen, you, you amaze me. Here. Here, Monsieur le Prefect. Examine this piece of cord, if you will. What do you make out of it? A uh, piece of cord, yes. Uh, well, let me see. Well, it's a piece of... Well, nothing, except that... Uh, well, it's it's been torn. Yes, it's been torn. Now, yes. try to tear it yourself. Well, try to... Well, I couldn't. It, it, it's a very, very strong cord. Ah. Notice anything else? Yes, now that I look at it, it's got a very unusual knot in it. Uh, but what does an unusual knot prove? You will see what I mean presently. It's the first stroke of ten o'clock. Any minute now, gentlemen, the murderer will enter this room. Uh, may I please ask you to extinguish all the candles in the room, all except one? Well, uh, why, uh, Monsieur Dupin, we'll all be murdered. Which would be no great tragedy, but I, I wouldn't worry if I were you. Well, as you say, Monsieur Dupin, uh, extinguish the candles, gentlemen. Yes. Now we are in semi-darkness. That is fine. Listen, gentlemen. 
The downstairs door to my pension has opened and closed. The murderer is now downstairs. He is walking up the stairs. Now listen. Yes, listen. For the love of heaven. Quiet, quiet. He is coming closer. Gentlemen, are you ready to grab him when he enters? Yes, monsieur. That is good. Good. He is standing outside my door now, monsieur le prefect. Ready, gentlemen? Yes. Come in. Grab him. Let me go. Let me go. There you are. So it is you, sailor. Uh, help the sailor to sit down. Uh, it was a trap, huh? Yeah, but this sailor doesn't look strong enough to commit these murders. Let me go! Let me go! Don't Let me go, I say! Please, please, please don't struggle. <laughs> you see, sailor, Monsieur le Prefect cannot arrest you for the murder because although you are responsible for the crimes, you are not guilty. I am not guilty. I, I'm not. I, I couldn't help. Of course you couldn't. Gentlemen... It must be obvious to you now that no man murdered these two women. The only creature able to do it would be a Bornese orangutan. Orangutan? I matched these hairs I found in the dead woman's hand, and of course they belong to just such a creature. An orangutan. Yes. Yes, Monsieur Dupin is right. But tell me, how is uh, this sailor involved? I own the animal. Dupin put an ad in the paper saying my orangutan was captured. Oh, that's why I'm here, to claim it. But didn't you realize that Monsieur Dupin knew that the murder was an orangutan? No. No, I... I didn't think anyone could solve the murders. But I did know that whoever put the ad in the paper knew that I was the owner of the animal and that he was keeping what he thought was a perfectly innocent animal. You see, I addressed my ad personally to this sailor. This piece of cord told me a sailor owned it. There was a sailor's knot in the cord... And the knot was peculiar to those tied on Maltese vessels. Therefore, when I put the ad in the paper, I asked the sailor from the Maltese vessel, uh, I checked on the name of the vessel from the sailing data in the paper, to come and get the beast. Well, naturally, I I came to pick him up. Ah, now I see. Uh, one question I must ask, sailor. How did the orangutan get hold of a razor, and uh, how did he manage to escape? I... I had the animal locked in my quarters. I... I captured them in Malta and brought them to this country to sell to the zoo. They're, they're very smart, you know. For last night, when I entered my room, he was trying to shave with my razor. When I tried to chain him up, he escaped. He ran out into the streets, saw the light in number 12, Rue Log, climbed up the lightning rod to the ladies' apartments. Well, you know the rest. Indeed we do. Well, gentlemen... If you have any other problems you wish settled, call on me. Just call on Monsieur Auguste Dupin. Incidentally, if you'd like to see the orangutan, you'll find it safely locked up in the zoo. From the time-worn pages of the past, we have brought you the immortal tale Murders in the Rue Morgue. Bell Keeper, hold the bell. 
from the time-worn pages of the past, we have heard another immortal tale in The Weird Circle. Bellkeeper, toll the bell. Be here in this lonely cave by the restless sea once again next time for another immortal tale in The Weird Circle. And now, tonight's presentation of radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. This evening, Suspense brings you what we feel is a particularly unusual and absorbing story. No actors other than Mr. William Conrad will appear in its presentation. It's a study in terror which has few equals. So now, starring Mr. Conrad... Here is tonight's suspense play by A. M. Burridge, The Waxwork. While the uniformed attendants of Mariner's Waxworks were ushering the last stragglers through the great glass-paneled double doors, the manager sat in his office interviewing Raymond Hewson. The manager was speaking. Oh, there's nothing new in your request, sir. And in fact, we refuse it to different people, mostly young bloods who've tried to make bets about three times a week, I should say. We have nothing to gain and something to lose by letting people spend the night in our murderer's den. Now, if I allowed it and some young idiot lost his senses, what would be my position, eh? But uh, your being a journalist somewhat alters the case. Houston smiled. I, I suppose you mean that journalists have no senses to lose. No, 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 of course not. But one imagines them to be responsible people. Well, besides, we have something to gain here. Publicity and advertisement. Yes, exactly, said Houston. Uh, and there I thought we might come to terms. The manager smiled. <laughs> yes, I know what's coming. You want to be paid twice, do you? You know, it used to be said years ago that Madame Tussaud would give a man a hundred pounds for sleeping alone in the Chamber of Horrors. Well, I hope you don't think that we've made any such offer. Uh, what is your paper, Mr. Houston? Well, I, I, I'm freelancing at present, sir, working on space for several papers. However, I, I would find no difficulty in getting the story printed. I'm sure the Morning Echo would use it like a shot. A night with Mariner's murderers... No live paper could turn it down, sir. Yes. Uh, how do you propose to treat it? Well, I shall make it gruesome, of course. Gruesome with just a saving touch of humor. The manager nodded and offered Houston his cigarette case. Very well, Mr. Houston. You get your story printed in the morning echo, and there'll be a five-pound note waiting for you when you care to come and call for it. But, uh, first of all... You realize it's no small ordeal that you're proposing to undertake. I'd like to be quite sure about you. I'd like you to be quite sure about yourself. I own I shouldn't care to take it on. I should hate having to sleep down there, alone, among them. Why? asked Houston. Oh, I don't know. Isn't any reason, I suppose. I don't believe in ghosts. If I did, I should expect them to haunt the scene of their crimes or the spots where their bodies were laid instead of a cellar which happens to contain their waxwork effigies. 
Well, it's just that I couldn't sit alone among them all night without seeming to stare at me in the way they do. After all, they represent the lowest and the most appalling types of humanity. Well, the whole atmosphere of the place is unpleasant. And if you're susceptible to atmosphere, sir, I warn you that you're in for a very uncomfortable night. Houston had known that from the moment when the idea first occurred to him. His soul sickened at the prospect. But he had a wife and a family to keep. So here was a chance not to be missed. The price of a special story in the morning echo with a five-pound note to add to it. Besides, if he wrote the story well, it might lead to an offer of regular employment. The manager smiled at him and rose. Well, I think the last of the people must have gone by now. Oh, uh, there is one condition I'm afraid I must impose upon you, sir. I must ask you not to smoke. We had a fire scare down on the murderer's den this evening. I don't know who gave the alarm, but uh, whoever it was, it was a false one. Fortunately, there were very few people down there at the time, or there might have been a panic. Ah, now, if you're ready, we'll make a move. He led the way through an open barrier and down ill-lit stone stairs, which conveyed a sinister impression of giving access to a dungeon. In a passage at the bottom were a few preliminary horrors, such as relics of the Inquisition, a rack taken from a medieval castle, branding irons, thumb screws, and other mementos of man's cruelty to men. Beyond the passage was the murderer's den. It was a room of irregular shape with a vaulted roof and dimly lit by electric lights burning behind inverted bowls of frosted glass. It was, by design, an eerie and uncomfortable chamber, a chamber whose atmosphere invited its visitors to speak in whispers. The waxwork murderers stood on low pedestals with numbered tickets at their feet. Recent notorieties rubbed dusty shoulders with the old favorites. Fertel, the murderer of Weir, stood as if frozen in the act of making a shop window gesture to young Bywaters. And there was Lefroy, the poor half-baked little snob who killed for gain so that he might ape the gentleman. Within five yards of him sat Mrs. Thompson, that erotic romanticist hanged to propitiate British middle-class matronhood. Charles Peace, the only member of the vile company who looked uncompromisingly and entirely evil, sneered across a gangway at Norman Thorne. Brown and Kennedy, the two most recent additions, stood between Mrs. Dyer and Patrick Mayen. The manager walking around with Houston pointed out several of the more interesting of these unholy notabilities. Uh, that's Crippen. I expect you recognize him, insignificant little beast who looks as if he couldn't tread on a worm. Oh, and that's Armstrong. That looks like a decent, harmless country gentleman, doesn't he? And there's old Vaquier. You can't miss him, of course, because of his beard. And this one... Who's that? Houston asked in a whisper. Here, come here. Have a good look at him. Uh, this is our star turn. He's the only one of the bunch that hasn't been hanged. 
The figure which Houston had indicated was that of a small, slight man, not much more than five feet in height. It wore little waxed mustaches, large spectacles, and a caped coat. There was something so exaggeratedly French in its appearance that it reminded Houston of a stage caricature. He could not have said precisely why the mild-looking face seemed to him so repellent, but he'd already recoiled a step, and even in the manager's company it cost him an effort to look again. But who is he? he asked. That, said the manager, is Dr. Baudette. Houston shook his head doubtfully. I, I think I've heard the name, but I forget in connection with what. The manager smiled. Yeah, you'd remember better if you were a Frenchman. You know, for some long while, that man was the terror of Paris. He carried on his work of healing by day and of throat cutting by night. Why, he killed for the sheer devilish pleasure it gave him to kill, and always in the same way, with a razor. After his last crime, he left a clue behind him which set the police upon his track. Oh, but he was much too clever for them. When he realized that the coils were closing about him, he mysteriously disappeared. And ever since, the police of every civilized country have been looking for him. There's no doubt that he managed to make away with himself, and by some means which has prevented his body coming to light, uh, one or two crimes of a similar nature have taken place since his disappearance, but he is believed almost for certain to be dead, and the experts believe these recrudescences to be the work of an imitator. It's queer, isn't it, Mr. Houston? How every notorious murderer has imitators. Houston shuddered and fidgeted with his feet. I, I, I don't like him at all. What eyes he's got. Yes, this figure's a little masterpiece. You find the eyes bite into you, huh? Well, that's excellent realism, then, for Baudet practiced mesmerism and was supposed to mesmerize his victims before dispatching them. Indeed, had he not done so, it's impossible to see how so small a man could have done his ghastly work. There were never any signs of a struggle. I... I, I, th I thought I saw him move, said Houston with a catch in his voice. The manager smiled. You'll have more than one optical illusion before the night's out, I expect, sir. Well, I'm sorry I can't give you any more light because all the lights are on. For obvious reasons, we keep this place as gloomy as possible, eh? Well, Mr. Houston, good night. Houston wheeled a swivel chair... A heavy one upholstered in plush, a little way down the central gangway, and deliberately turned it so that its back was toward the effigy of Dr. Baudet. For some undefined reason, he liked Dr. Baudet a great deal less than his companions. Busying himself with arranging the chair, he was almost lighthearted. But when the manager's footfalls had died away, and a deep hush stole over the chamber, he realized that he had no slight ordeal before him. The dim, unwavering light fell on the rows of figures which were so uncannily like human beings 
that the silence and the stillness seemed unnatural and even ghastly. He missed the sound of breathing, the rustling of clothes, the 101 minute noises one hears when even the deepest silence has fallen upon a crowd. And the air was as stagnant as water at the bottom of a standing pond. It must be like this at the bottom of the sea, he thought. He faced these sinister figures boldly enough. They were only waxworks. So long as he let that thought dominate all others, he promised himself that all would be well. It did not, however, save him long from the discomfort occasioned by the waxen stare of Dr. Boudet, which he knew was directed upon him from behind. The eyes of the little Frenchman haunted and tormented him, and he itched with a desire to turn and look. My nerves have started already, he thought. And then another voice in his brain spoke to him. It's because you're afraid that you won't turn and look at him. The two voices quarreled silently for a moment or two. And at last, Houston slewed his chair around a little and looked behind him. Among the many figures standing in stiff, unnatural poses, the effigy of the dreadful little doctor stood out with a queer prominence, perhaps because of a steady beam of light beat straight down upon it. Hewson flinched before the parody of mildness which some fiendishly skilled craftsman had managed to convey in wax, met the eyes for one agonized second and then turned again to face the other direction. He's only a waxwork like the rest of you, Yosin muttered defiantly. You're all only waxworks. They were only waxworks, yes. But waxworks don't move. Oh, not that he had seen the least movement anywhere, but it struck him that in the moment or two while he'd looked behind him, there had been the least subtle change in the grouping of the figures in front. Crippen, for instance, seemed to have turned at least one degree to the left. Or, thought Hewson, perhaps the illusion was due to the fact that he had not slewed his chair back into its exact original position. Oh, but there were Brown and Kennedy, too. Surely one of them had moved his hands. Hewson held his breath for a moment and then drew his courage back to him as a man lifts a weight. He took a notebook from his pocket and wrote quickly, Memo, deathly silence and unearthly stillness of figures. Like being at bottom of sea. Hypnotic eyes, Dr. Baudet. Figures seem to move when not being watched. He closed the book suddenly over his fingers and looked around quickly and awfully over his right shoulder. He had neither seen nor heard a movement, but... It was as if some sixth sense had made him aware of one. He looked straight into the vapid countenance of Lefroy, which smiled vacantly back as if to say, It wasn't I. <laughs> no, of course, it wasn't he or any of them. <laughs> it was his own nerves. Or was it? 
Then why all that silent unrest about him? A subtle something in the air which did not quite break the silence and happened whichever way he looked just beyond the boundaries of his vision. He swung round quickly to encounter the mild but baleful stare of Dr. Baudet. And then without warning, he jerked his head back to stare straight at Crippen. <laughs> He'd nearly caught Crippen that time. You'd better be careful, Crippen, and all the rest of you. If I do see one of you move, I'll smash you to pieces. Do you hear? He ought to go, he told himself. Already he had experienced enough to write his story, or ten stories for the matter of that. Well then, why not go? The morning echo would be none the wiser as to how long he'd stayed. Nobody would care so long as his story was a good one. Yes, but the manager, one never knew. Perhaps the manager would quibble over that five-pound note which he needed so badly. He wondered if his wife were asleep. Or if she were lying awake and thinking of him. <laughs> She'd laugh when he told her that he'd imagine... That he'd imagine... <laughs> this was a little too much. It was bad enough that the waxwork effigies of murderers should move when they weren't being watched, but it was intolerable that they should breathe... Somebody was breathing. Or was it his own breath which sounded to him as if it came from a distance? He sat rigid, listening, straining, until he exhaled with a long sigh. His own breath, after all. Uh, if not, something had divined that he was listening and had ceased breathing simultaneously. Hewson turned his head swiftly around and looked all about him out of haggard and hunted eyes. Everywhere his gaze encountered the vacant waxen faces, and everywhere he felt that by just some least fraction of a second he had missed seeing a movement of hand or foot, a silent opening, a compression of lips, a flicker of eyelids, a look of human intelligence now smoothed out. They, they were like naughty children in a classroom, whispering, fidgeting, and laughing behind their teacher's back, but blandly innocent when his gaze was turned upon them. No. No, this would not do. This distinctly would not do. He must clutch at something, grip with his mind upon something which belonged essentially to the workaday world, to the daylight London streets. He was Raymond Hewson, an unsuccessful journalist, a living and breathing man, and these figures grouped around him were only dummies, so they could neither move nor whisper. Well, what did it matter if they were supposed to be lifelike effigies of murderers? They were only made of wax and sawdust and stood there for the entertainment of morbid sightseers and orange-sucking trippers. Oh, that was better. Now, what was that funny story which somebody had told him in the Falstaff pub yesterday? Oh, yes. Ha, ha, ha.
He recalled part of it, but not all. For the gaze of Dr. Baudet urged, challenged, and finally compelled him to turn. Hewson half turned and then swung his chair so as to bring him face to face with a wearer of those dreadful hypnotic eyes. His own eyes were dilated, and his mouth at first set on a grin of terror, lifted at the corners in a snarl, and then Hewson spoke and woke a hundred sinister echoes. You moved! Yes, you did, you moved! I saw you! You moved! Then he sat quite still, staring straight before him, like a man found frozen in the Arctic snows. Dr. Baudet's movements were leisurely. He stepped off his pedestal with the mincing care of a lady alighting from a bus. The platform stood about two feet from the ground, and above the edge of it a plush-covered rope hung in arc-like curves. Dr. Baudet lifted up the rope until it formed an arch for him to pass under, stepped off the platform and sat down on the edge, facing Houston. Then he nodded and smiled and said, Good evening. <laughs> I need hardly tell you that uh, not until I overheard the conversation between you and the worthy manager of this establishment did I suspect that I should have the pleasure of a companion here for the night. <laughs> Oh, you cannot move or speak without my bidding, but you can hear me perfectly well. Oh, oh something tells me that you are, uh, shall I say, nervous? My dear sir, I have no illusions. I am not one of these contemptible effigies miraculously come to life. I am Dr. Bourdet himself. He paused, coughed, and shifted his legs. Uh, pardon me, but I am a little stiff. Oh, uh, please, let me explain. Uh, circumstances with which I need not fatigue you have made it desirable that I should live in England. I was close to this building this evening when I saw a policeman regarding me, I thought, a little too curiously. I guessed that he intended to follow and perhaps ask me embarrassing questions, so I mingled with the crowd and came in here. <laughs> A coin bought my admission to the chamber in which we now meet, and an inspiration showed me a certain means of escape. I raised a cry of fire, <laughs> and when all the fools had rushed to the stairs, I stripped my effigy of the caped coat which you behold me wearing, donned it, hid my effigy under the platform at the back, and took its place on the pedestal. <laughs> uh, the manager's description of me, which I had the embarrassment of being compelled to overhear, was biased, but not altogether inaccurate. Clearly, I am not dead, although it is as well that they will think otherwise, no? His uh, account of my abbey, which I have indulged for years, although through necessity uh, less frequently of late, was in the main true. For you see, the world is divided between collectors and non-collectors. With the non-collectors, we are not concerned, eh? The collectors collect anything according to their individual tastes, from money to cigarette cards, from malls to matchboxes. Uh, I collect throats. 
He paused again and regarded Hewson's throat with interest, mingled with disfavor. Uh, I am obliged to the chance which brought us together tonight, and perhaps it would seem ungrateful to complain. Uh, from motives of personal safety, my activities have been somewhat curtailed of late years, and I am glad of this opportunity of gratifying my somewhat unusual whim. But uh, you, sir... <laughs> You have such a skinny neck. Uh, if you will overlook a personal remark, I should never have selected you from choice. I like men with thick necks. Thick red necks. He fumbled in an inside pocket and took out something which he tested against a wet forefinger and then proceeded to pass gently to and fro across the palm of his left hand. This is a little French razor. The blade, you will observe, is very narrow. They do not cut very deep, but deep enough. In just one little moment, you shall see for yourself. Huh? Now, I shall ask you the little civil question of all the polite barbers. <laughs> Does the razor suit you, sir? He rose up, a diminutive but menacing figure of evil and approached Houston with a silent, furtive step of a hunting panther. Uh, you will have the goodness to raise your chin a little, then. Oh, thank you. And a little more, just a little more. Ah, thank you. Merci, monsieur. Merci, merci. Ah, merci. Over one end of the chamber was a thick skylight of frosted glass, which by day let in a few sickly and filtered rays from the floor above. After sunrise, these began to mingle with the subdued light from the electric bulbs. And this mingled illumination added a certain ghastliness to a scene which needed no additional touch of horror. The waxwork figures stood apathetically in their places, waiting to be admired or execrated by the crowds who would presently wander fearfully among them. In their midst, in the center gangway, Hewson sat still, leaning far back in his swivel chair. His chin was uptilted as if he were waiting to receive attention from a barber. And although there was not a scratch upon his throat, nor anywhere upon his body, he was cold, and dead. Dr. Baudet, on his pedestal, watched the dead man unemotionally. He did not move, nor was he capable of motion. But then, after all, he was only a waxwork. In which William Conrad starred in tonight's presentation of The Waxwork. The music for tonight's program was composed by Lucian Morawieck. Next week, we bring you a story based on fact. A man's last hours in a death cell awaiting execution. 
We call it The Phones Die First. That's next week on Suspense. is produced and directed in Hollywood by Anthony Ellis. Tonight's story was written by A.M. Burridge. The orchestra was conducted by Wilbur Hatch. Stay tuned for five minutes of CBS News to be followed on most of these same stations by My Son Jeep. America listens most to the CBS Radio Network.